I'm Austin, and this is Validated. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Validated. We're trying to do something different from what you expect from a show about Web3. Each episode will bring you conversations exploring the technology and philosophies behind Web3 with people who are rethinking the internet and our world. Today, I'm speaking with Ryan Selkis. If you've been following crypto for a while, or even if you're fairly new to the space, chances are you know who Ryan is. He's best known as the founder of Masari, a crypto research and data firm. Ryan has been a crypto investor, writer, and advocate since 2013. That's almost a decade. He's part of the small cohort of people who actually have a long-term enough perspective on the industry to help us zoom out from some of the current market noise and make sense of what's really going on in the world of crypto. As you might expect, Ryan is hopeful in the long term of blockchain. Throughout this conversation, we found some paradoxical silver linings in the tumult of 2022. Millions of new users joined the space, Web2 platforms expanded their support for Web3, and interest from developers has never been higher. At the same time, well, you've seen your portfolio. We also explore how DC's views of crypto are changing and discuss his work as an advocate for the industry. Let's get into it. Ryan, welcome to Validated. Thanks for having me. Yeah, first time we've done this. Glad we get a chance to do this. I'd love to chat a little bit about the ideas and the philosophy of crypto that originally drew you to it back in the day. Yeah, so I mean, I've been full time in the space since 2013, and that original cohort was Bitcoin only. And it is true that there was a strong libertarian streak within the community. I remember first learning about Bitcoin back in 2011, and you know, in the U.S., we had this issue known as the debt sequester, and basically, it was one of the first really ugly congressional battles that I remember in my adult life where they just could not pass a budget, right? And, and basically, you know, debt sequestration was going to be like across the board, 20% cuts to the, the budget if they couldn't come to an agreement by, you know, 1159 on this date. And sure enough, 1158 comes and they say, oh, just kidding. Like, we're going to have file a 90-day extension, right? And the next week, the US debt was downgraded for the first time ever from like AAA to, to AA. And it was like, it was a big deal for the markets. It was a big deal in general. And I was already kind of like libertarian leaning in terms of you know, some of my you know, political, like early 20s, like political philosophy, like, you know, Ron Paul uh, asked, you know, anti-war type libertarian kind of that whole streak appealed to me. And I remember, you know, kind of digging in at that point on the US dollar and, and kind of its long-term viability and kind of learning about the history of reserve currencies and fiat currencies in general. And when the debt sequester happened, I learned about Bitcoin, ignored it, bought gold, shorted the US Treasury ETF. And that was the absolutely correct thesis and literally the only way that you could have lost money on that trade, right? Fortunately, I came back to it a couple of years later. And you know, at that point, you know, Coinbase had launched, the Winklevoss twins had, had you know, revealed uh, their ETF plans. And then very importantly, Russ Ulbricht and, and Silk Road was shut down in kind of mid-2013. And that's when I really started to dig in and, and, and happened to be transitioning from my first startup, which you know, took a couple of years and then fizzled out. And I had some free time on my hands. So, you know, I got into it just as a curiosity and then, you know, kind of lucked into it from from that kind of philosophical standpoint and then got fully red pilled after reading the white paper and started writing about it pretty much immediately. And then, you know, here we are 10 years later. And obviously, it's quite a bit broader than just uh, Bitcoin at this point. So as someone who kind of got into it with a little bit of this libertarian streak, I talked to a lot of folks who were kind of around in that era and they have trouble recognizing a lot of the values that maybe originally drew them to crypto nowadays, especially folks who are really who who for Bitcoin, that was their gateway drug into into the crypto space. How does someone like you who obviously 
that's the stuff that attracted you originally was this sort of full self-sovereign idea. But you've you've stayed hopeful about about the space. Like, how do you view the differences between where crypto is in 2022 from like a philosophical standpoint versus where it was in 2013 and what pulled you in then? I, I think it's actually really healthy to have the degree of skepticism that we have in the industry across you know m- most different ecosystem participants. And I don't I I think the don't trust verify ethos has stayed pretty consistent, but you've seen like different forks in communities. And there are some exceptions to this. I don't mean to paint everybody with with a, a really broad negative brush, but most quote unquote Bitcoin maximalists are much newer. You know, you look at, you know, Vitalik was an early Bitcoiner. Eric Voorhees was an early Bitcoiner. I was an early Bitcoiner. You know, do- dozens of us, you know, were early Bitcoiners because that's the only asset that really mattered. But we still saw the value and the potential of things like Ethereum. And then later, some of the other, you know, layer ones and DeFi and NFTs, you know, we're curious about it, but we're also very deeply skeptical about the motivations of folks that get into the space that are new. And it's almost like they have to prove their stripes and, and actually demonstrate some degree of, of kind of long-termism and, and, and kind of mission-driven focus before, you know, they're trusted or taken seriously. And in that end, I, I kind of feel like every time that there's a crisis within a, a given community and they go through their trough of disillusionment and then come roaring back stronger and, and more resilient and, and at a higher high or more decentralized or whatever you think about the, the right rubric uh, to, to be, that's when it, you know, it, it's almost like you've earned your stripes and, and you can tell that people are, are kind of in this for the long haul and not just taking shortcuts or, or basically trying to you know, create some kind of parasitic relationship with with what is otherwise i think a really optimistic ecosystem and and you know technology that's an optimistic bet on the future i think you know we always get maligned during the bear markets and the crashes but if you look at the folks that are responsible for the crashes they're always the folks that were the hangers on and, and the malignancies in the market anyway they're they're very very rarely the builders and and you know the people that you know kind of came in with a really mission driven focus you know i'm i'm not going to even say his name because i've already committed to that for the new year but you know certain people were 100% direct about not caring about crypto. It was just an asset to trade. And you could tell because they told you that all they cared about was making as much money as fast as possible for, for whatever other end they had. And so, you know, I, I for one, and I, I know many other were very deeply skeptical of, of that type of mindset, you know, for, for certain individuals that, that we saw, you know, do very well in, in 2020 and 2021, but then you know, this year it kind of fizzled. On the other hand, you know, you look at, at some of the builders, like the year that Ethereum had was tremendous with the merge and, and kind of the success that they had and, and the success of, of kind of rollups. I, I wrote about this in the annual report, but I kind of view this as like one of those formational, like, like foundational years for the Solana ecosystem, because you see how much is going on and how much is getting built. You've very violently shaken out the weak hands and, and, and had to kind of go through this crisis of confidence. But now it's kind of like a make or break year. And, and if you have the solid enough foundation, which I happen to think Solana does in terms of developer interest, in terms of like innovation around the edges and infrastructure, then, you know, that's where you're really positioned for like the resurgence. And then in a couple of years, people that are open minded will say the same thing about Solana that Bitcoiners who are skeptical of Ethereum now say about Ethereum, right? That's kind of like the, the crypto circle of life, if you will. There's a rise, a crash. And then do you have what it takes to get off the mat and resurge? And if you do, then it means you probably got that 
missionary core and the folks that are really kind of committed to the long-term vision of, of you know, what this industry could be. I kind of love existing in like paradoxes because I think there were the most interesting questions get asked. And, you know, 2022 was one of those years because if you had no context of token price, you'd have thought this was the biggest year for blockchain yet, right? Web2 companies started doing full integrations, mainstream adoption sort of started coming much more. The on-chain activity for Protocols like Solana skyrocketed. Ethereum successfully swapped engines on the car while the car was still running. Like they they did the hard thing, right? This this was the year where actually, if you look at it, like stuff kind of took off in mainstream. And yet what we've seen is kind of the opposite of that if you start looking at the price, right? I, I don't think I've ever seen a place where the the market story and the technology story and the adoption story are further apart, at least in recent memory. In short, all the people and products that I didn't like are dead. And all the people that I liked and projects that I was excited about are thriving. So like, I can't imagine, I can't remember a time that I was more excited about a year. Um, and we track this with our, our reports on a quarterly basis. You know, our, our mission really, the, the product vision that we have is to create real-time financial reporting for, for crypto communities. So it's not enough to bitch about the SEC. Like we actually think that we can build a hundred X better like information system for community traded assets. And, and we do reporting on, you know, all these different projects where you look at the price are down, you know, 75, 80, 90, 95%. But you look at the metrics, whether it's transactions, you know, number of NFTs with distributed file storage systems, the utilization rate of decentralized like hardware networks, quarter over quarter, 50%, 60%, 70% growth, stable coins, like Quarter in, quarter out. No, November and, and December were record all-time months for stablecoins. USDC and you know, Paxos issued stablecoins are flying, and they're closer than ever to being you know, institutionally or, or kind of internationally recognized under given you know, regulatory frameworks. Those are the things that are like really zero to one improvements in terms of like adoption and integration into you know, the financial system, and they're not showing signs of slowing down. So the the only concern I really have is. Are, are people going to take this opportunity to kind of recommit and refocus efforts and discard the noise and the get rich quick shit and like all the other distractions and shiny objects that, that will ultimately be their undoing if they wait too long to fix it? Or is, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, if, if folks that are listening work out, right? Like 2021 was a bulk year. And then, you know, we had folks, you know, get their ass kicked because they were a little bit too out of shape from the bulk year. And now this year is kind of like the next part of the Rocky montage where it's like, okay, let me, let me get my ass back in shape. We're going to cut and then we're going to be ready for like the much bigger fight and, and, you know, to get back at it. So I know some people will listen to this and, and think that I'm being, you know, sanguine, but the reality is I've just, I've lived through two full cycles now and this cycle, like the end of it feels so much healthier than the last two, right? In 2018, it wasn't obvious that there was going to be any tokens of real value or any networks that were going to have economics that, that, that made sense or applications that worked. And now you turn around and you've had all these like crazy and composable upgrades in DeFi and scaling solutions and inter-blockchain communications. Like crypto is not going to be uninvented. The biggest hindrance now is going to be how can we actually demonstrate that this is like valuable tech that's good for society so that we don't face just a ridiculous number of roadblocks and hurdles that are thrown at us from from governments, because I think that's kind of like the final boss stage that we're at right now versus, you know, are people going to care about crypto? I think that that ship has sailed. And, and the answer is that people are, you know, understanding of the potential of these technologies. Yeah. So so looking at some of those organizations that have had challenges through 2022, most failures we've seen, I think Terra is probably the exception here, 
have been failures of centralized entities and centralized exchanges. They were folks who were not primarily doing on-chain transactions. They were folks who were primarily transacting off-chain and primarily had obligations that existed off-chain. What do you think the future of these sort of centralized exchanges and centralized entities are? It feels like every cycle they get built up and then they explode catastrophically. And this doesn't happen as much in the traditional financial space. And this is kind of a, a real clash, I think, between folks who who look at this space and think we need more regulation and folks who think we don't need more regulation. But it is a pattern that that does seem to exist. And it's always the off-chain stuff that causes the problem for folks on-chain. I think it's a bit of a false choice to have DeFi versus CeFi thought of, you know, as, as, as kind of a black or white thing. I do think that there's a spectrum and we've seen more of it this year. You started to see some of the big DeFi protocols incorporate real world assets. Yeah, I think that financialization and, and, and that trend is going to be a big driver of, of uh, growth in some pockets of crypto in, in you know, 2023 and, and kind of going forward. On the other hand, ironically, one of the most interesting integrations of the year was Ledger Live and FTX, right? Like Ledger customers were able to trade using the FTX order book and liquidity from their Ledger devices. Those customers did not get wrecked, right? Because the only time that they interacted with FTX was that moment of time that the orders were getting filled. Right. And then, you know, the 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 assets were like self-custodied and safely secured, otherwise on, on like the, the individual hardware devices. Some people will just say, you know what, I trust my Fidelity account. I'm going to trust Coinbase as a custodian because they're well regulated. We know they're reserved. They go through like X, Y and Z. And so in that respect, like good regulation, good oversight is really strong for the industry. It's a good positive for the industry for those centralized players. On the other hand, as long as you keep the bridges open between like peer-to-peer finance and centralized finance and, and you, you kind of have a, a good good balance, then people can kind of pick and choose what risks they're willing to accept, right? I'm willing to accept centralized exchange risk because I don't want to worry about my personal security and my personal key management, right? And and for some people, like, you know, I, I consider myself like this, right? Like I'm actually less concerned about like my ability to manage my own keys and more concerned about like a $5 wrench attack. So I am still going to prefer something like, you know, Anchorage or, or Coinbase in, in many scenarios because I, I know that that's kind of built in. And so you have to trust some institution or, or, or some you know, products at some point with, um, with something like key security. But that doesn't mean that you should be giving up you know, all of your autonomy and like all of your ability to inter- interface with, with these you know, peer-to-peer networks. So I, I think the fact that these different parts of the ecosystem are getting built up in parallel it, it it does two things. One, I think it's net helpful in allowing people to choose their own adventure, right? And, and whatever kind of user experience is, is best going forward. But it also creates a level of resilience and, and anti-fragility in like the downside scenarios because it forces more hostile actors, particularly at the, the state level, from being really effective with crackdowns, right? So it, it creates a little bit of a better game of whack-a-mole. And, you know, in the West, I think you can say that out loud a little bit more assertively because, you know, especially in the, in the U.S., because we, we've got, you know, these first and fourth and 10th Amendment protections. But in other parts of the world, like that is like an imperative, right? If, if you're talking about folks in high inflation countries or with capital controls or, you know, just you know, significant like geopolitical dysfunction, then it, it starts to you know, feel a little bit more real even for like the monetary and DeFi use cases versus here in the U.S. where it's like, oh, we're, now we're talking about hardware networks and decentralized social and NFTs, like, you know, well, yeah, because that's what can have mainstream appeal here because most people aren't worried about JP Morgan going under. Yeah, I think that's a, that's that's such a good point, which is like, 
I think we all basically trust FDIC at the end of the day. And like FDIC is an anomaly on the world stage. Most countries and most banks don't have that kind of government backstop on personal deposit accounts. So a lot of this tech, I mean, you know, there, there's obviously a huge number of developers on uh, Solana and other blockchains that were in Ukraine and their ability to either, you know, because they had assets in crypto, either leave and get their families out and still have access to capital or stay and be able to buy stuff they needed to even when the traditional financial payment rails weren't functioning and SWIFT was doing a bunch of weird stuff to kind of cut Ukraine off. Uh, very, very interesting to kind of see the role of crypto stepping in and in situations like that. So one of the the things I would love to talk a little about is as the interfaces between Web 2 and Web 3 become murkier, right? They become more integrated, exactly what we were talking about, the ability to trade from Ledger Live hitting the FTX order book. What is the sort of role you see of public perception? I think if you deal with a, a large Web 2 company, the expectation is one of customer service. It's one of a dependable product that like, if I can't send a tweet, I get mad at Twitter. Right. If I if I can't log on to a specific application, there is an idea of like someone needs to fix this for me. And the core tenant of blockchain is there's no one who can do this except me. How do you sort of think about those two cultures merging or adapting? Because they're on the face of it, they're fairly incompatible just expectations that users might have for systems when they're using them. I know I've been you know, pretty public about this, but I think this is just such a failure of the regulatory state right? To, to pick the right battles. There's this general misconception and, and misperception, I think, of folks outside of crypto that it's the Wild West and people are fighting against regulation and good policy and oversight. And it's, it's complete nonsense. And, and you know, you know and, and folks that are in the trenches know, we're down in DC or, or we're in Europe and we're talking to policymakers. And yes, if the conversation is self-custody and privacy are going to be illegalized, and peer-to-peer finance is going to have to go through a, a central like authorities registration process. The answer is no. Like we are going to fight that. But why is that blocking good stablecoin policy? Why is that blocking exchange oversight and custodial oversight the same way that you would have in, in the traditional markets, whether you're talking about banks, securities dealers, you know, or, or, or the like? So it really comes down to just treating like for like, but without kind of you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater and, and really kind of crippling innovation in, in the sphere. And if you had that, if you had some common sense on the, the part of the regulators, we wouldn't have things like FTX, right? You wouldn't have Mt. Gox. You wouldn't have, you know, a lot of these centralized failures. And I think in many cases, like their eyes are just totally off the ball. And I know I've been critical about the SEC, but this is the perfect case in point. I mean, Grayscale right now, the biggest asset manager in the world. They own 3% of, of you know, Bitcoin and, and, and Ethereum. And they're in a tough spot because what's happening with this massive discount, you know, their shareholders are underwater to the tune of almost $8 billion, which is more than FTX lost investors, right? So $8 billion worth of impairment, that's not Grayscale's fault. That's the SEC's fault for being obstinate and refusing to create any structures where either investors could redeem their shares in these trust products for the underlying assets, or more importantly, just approve a spot ETF instead of you know, trying to block this uh, obstinately for, for years, because what you're really trying to do is play you know, a, a hostage you know, negotiation 
role in making sure that you have oversight of the exchanges and then maybe we'll let you kind of you know have these products trade yeah i'd love to kind of go into that a little bit more what are the changes let's let's use grayscale as an example here what are the changes that the sec uh could make that would have alleviated the situation a little bit more point blank a lot of this contagion would never have happened if they had approved a spot etf after they approved the futures etf you know the the spot etf is derivatives are based on spot right that's why they're called derivatives and yet you know a derivatives based etf with a much higher fee structure was approved you know a year 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 and a half ago almost and yet the spot etf was continuously disallowed and, and blocked for reasons that seemed, you know, arbitrary and capricious, and 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 Grayscale is actually suing them over this as a result. But once those toxic assets and those that that product was out in the wild, and, and these you know, assets were trapped, and, and you had this market dysfunction because of the SEC's obstinance, then it created this system of bad collateral that had a cascading effect across multiple different entities. So first it was three arrows, and then it ultimately trickled, you know, into into BlockFi, and then it again, trickled into FTX. And, and yeah, that's a big, big reason that we had this credit contagion is due to this one product and the fact that it was used as collateral and that that collateral was toxic because of its illiquidity and all the, the SEC driven dysfunction around, around its redeemability. Like that, I mean, that's just, it's, it's just basic math, right? And, and, and just like looking at the, at the timeline of events to, to kind of show that this happened. And a big reason it happened was, was kind of due to this policy that doesn't really make much sense. If your mandate is to protect investors, promote fair and efficient markets, and promote capital formation, which is literally on the SEC's website. So do you think the SEC should have basically declined to approve a futures without a spot? No, I, I think that both should have been fair game, right? It, it completely makes sense that both would be fair game, but I think it's, it's you know, completely counterintuitive to approve a derivatives product before approving uh, a spot-based product because the derivative is derived from the spot, right? So it's just it's it, it doesn't make any sense at all. And I think they know that. But the reason the stated reason is that there's no surveillance of the underlying spot markets. And what they really mean by that is we don't have SEC registered spot crypto exchanges. Isn't that kind of a fair criticism, though? If you're taking a spot product and bringing it onto a regulated exchange, that the underlying market should also be within that same framework? Well, I think you have to look at what what happens with commodity-based ETFs that are spot-driven, like like the gold ETF. Right. It's apples or oranges in that in that case. But you know, uh, the regulators are kind of jockeying for position because of you know, crypto's uniqueness. Okay, on Coinbase and and uh, Kraken and other exchanges, you can trade Bitcoin, you can trade Ether. You can trade all these other assets. And now, like the long tails, some of them start to look like securities. So because some of them look like securities to the SEC, now it's this, you know, you know, we will not negotiate until like we have oversight type of dynamic. And then that's kind of created all these ripple effects. You know, good good policy would have solved this years ago. But, you know, we, we have a, a pretty dysfunctional system right now, I think, you know, in the U.S. And, and it's ironic. It's in some cases, it's more dysfunctional in Europe. But, but in other cases, I think Europe is, is way ahead of us when it comes to you know common sense crypto regulation. Yeah, so when you're talking to regulators or politicians about blockchain and crypto and web3, you know, there's a lot of harm that some individuals and bad actors have done this year, have done over previous years. What is the tenor of those conversations like? Are you in a situation where you're trying to sort of convince them that the net positive is worth it against the net negative of these bad actors? Like what what are those type of questions that you get from them look like around 
basically like, are you asked to justify crypto's existence? Are you asked to paint a rosy future for them? What are those questions like? Well, I think there's two separate sets of questions, right? There's questions and relationships with the regulators. And then there's questions of policy, which is, you know, are we going to get, you know, comprehensive legislation and and kind of guidance in, in the U.S.? And unfortunately, I think it's a long shot that we get comprehensive legislation in the U.S. just based on kind of the politics of, of uh, you know, kind of post, post-election day and the new Congress that's getting sworn in. There's really three things that I think we need to see in terms of guidance in the U.S. and, and things that have to be driven by statute instead of just regulator guidance. The first and maybe the easiest, the, the one that we have a shot at getting right in the next kind of year or two is around stable coins. It's because they're easy to understand. They're very important to the crypto ecosystem. They're also you know, really interesting and important structured products that ultimately I think could extend like the dominance of, of the dollar and, and like the digital dollar. The other one, which is really where a lot of us were hoping we could get with the DCCPA, this, this Stabbing Out Bozeman bill that FTX had a role in, in kind of pushing. It was flawed in the sense that it was attempting to capture DeFi and put it under the same framework as kind of these centralized exchanges. And if if we could just focus on like the centralized custodians, exchanges, broker dealers, I think that we could actually see some good policy, you know, in, in the next year or two. That's still going to leave the number three priority, which is really where the rubber meets the road for, for a lot of crypto beyond Bitcoin. And that is what's the definition of a commodity versus a security? What type of information reporting systems do we have? What is like uh, the, the, the safe harbor or, or kind of the standard that we need to build? To make sure that we can have innovation in tokens, but we still have investor protections. And that is a really messy middle to navigate. And is, frankly, it's one of the reasons that we started Masari, because we knew that this was going to take probably a decade for folks to kind of wrap their heads around and, and kind of build policy around because there's no black and white solution. So I think we're in a bit of a foot race, us as a company, to basically demonstrate, you know, can we and, and other kind of information players build like real-time financial reporting equivalents that are like 10x or 100x improvements on the Edgar system. Because if we can, you, you can kind of show your work and say, like what you are proposing would be actively worse in terms of like information symmetry and in terms of the performance of these networks than what the industry has already been able to build itself because all of this accounting infrastructure is public. The blockchains are public. Yeah. So one of the things, I mean, there's there's this like great Twitter meme, which is that if cash were invented today, it wouldn't pass the Howey test, right? Which is, I, I think, a very funny oversimplification of of what that would look like. But there there is some truth to the fact that like legacy products are legacy products and they're grandfathered in. I, th- I think there's a lot of desire for an overhaul of securities legislation in the United States. There's this, we have to really start from the beginning. We have to rewrite this stuff. I think if you go to most interest groups, they would have that exact same criticism about whatever piece of legislation impacts their industry. I I have friends who who uh, you know work in the power industry and like they're you know or work on environmental regulation and their criticisms are the same as like we need to rewrite all of these laws. And I think what we've historically seen from Congress is very little appetite for wholesale rewrites. And instead, we get things like the way the ACA was done is sort of a bunch of weird loopholes and the way budget reconciliation is done nowadays it's all a bunch of weird loopholes to get stuff passed i think uh you know there's a real as i mentioned there's a real strong desire to do something that's sort of wholesale let's rewrite the thing 
barring that, are, are there smaller changes that you could see making a bigger impact that maybe don't get to the core of the issue, but they at least allow more of this development to move back on shore? I'd like to paint a rosy picture. I, th- I think the answer is probably no. I think, you know, we're, we're, we're likely uh, going to be in limbo the next couple of years. I mean, th- there's a lot of us that are trying to spend time with policymakers and, and kind of have these balanced conversations, not selling out the industry, but, you know, kind of listening and, and, and kind of proposing solutions, you know, bi-directionally. But I think you know, the reality is that we we've been set back so far by the events of last year that are the repercussions are, are still ongoing, that we're running out of adults and warm bodies, so to speak, <laughs> to like make the case on behalf of crypto. Like I'm I'm it's it's kind of sad to be honest with you, but I mean if you just think of like all of the the really big organizations that have you know had a, a fall from grace or that are under some degree of pressure, it really has been just a relentless barrage of bad press underperformance, you know, kind of broken trust. And the only thing that I think is going to heal that is time. So, you know, we're, we're actually arguably better off right now in engaging in a little bit of trench warfare and like strategic retreat to just regroup and, and hopefully just build our way out of this. If you were to wave a wand and get policy, quote unquote, solutions tomorrow based on our performance last year, I don't think that anyone would like them very much. So, you know, unfortunately, we probably are in like a litigation and retrenchment phase that is going to last a, a couple of years. And, and frankly, I think it'll probably last through the presidential cycle in the U.S. Because you're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming you're interested in staying on top of the latest trends, news and more. So I want to tell you about another show. It's called Web3 with A6NC Crypto but it's really about the future of the internet, future of creators, future of business, future of the way we work and live. It's for anyone seeking to understand the latest tech trends direct from experts with high insights per minute, given your time and attention are so valuable. Follow Web3 with A6NC in your podcast app now. I think one of the questions that a lot of people have is like, what keeps you so hopeful? about this. We've we've talked about a lot of the challenges and a lot of the difficulties specifically with regulation and sort of more mainstream adoption. You're still here. You've been here for a while. You're you're fighting a fight in DC. Like what what keeps you hopeful about this? Every time I use a product that works that people 6 months, a year, 2 years prior had said was ridiculous or uh was moon fumes or vaporware, you know, there there's just been countless examples of products, companies, people that have been underestimated and then turned around and just wildly outperformed and built something that was transformative and, and really important for the industry and, and something that was open source, right? Yeah. So, so, so many, so many times when there's like some zero to one leap, it can be used by anybody. And then that is like a new step on the staircase that, that people can climb and, and everybody can kind of climb and you can kind of pull them along with you. That's really powerful in terms of the momentum of the industry and like our, our capacity to build um, and kind of move things forward as an industry. You know, so you have a situation where DeFi, NFTs, DAOs, decentralized hardware networks, layer ones, layer twos, bridges, like these things did not exist four years ago. Like they, none of them existed. And if they did, it was by months, right? If maybe Uniswap. Ave had just come off of like their fundraiser. I, I don't actually remember when they launched. You know, crypto punks were released, but then they were forgotten about for four years, and then they resurged. You know, when everybody started speculating on them. So, 
you know, I think now that those are kind of mainstream and, and they're out of the bag, you know, now you're going to have the next crop of people that build around that. And it's going to be the next crop of people that are building things that either look like toys or people say, this is never going to work and here's why. And then they're just going to chip away at the problem set. And then you're going to have something in a couple of years where voila, all of a sudden something just works, right? You know, I'm sure you've done the same, right? The first Uniswap transaction, right? The, the first like trustless bridge transaction that you do minting an nft right the nfts like you know that we have today these pfps like they're they're like frankly i think they're stupid right but they're they're really good statements of work i don't care about the the whether it's a board ape or a penguin or a, or or a punk like i don't care about what the pixels are i care about the fact that this is something that is now out of the sandbox and people are starting to like imagine use cases for far beyond like what the what the v1 looks like and uh, you know Part of it is I have the luxury of just having like seen prior cycles. And so I, I just have a lot more conviction about where the real risks are. And to me, the real risks are not that this fizzles out, it's that it's stomped out. And and it, and and for that, it would be because we made one too many blunders and, and you know, lost one one too many uh, too many degrees of trust from like a broader like society level. So, uh, you know, when I say build our way out of this, like I, I, I kind of think that, you know, building products that are going to be useful for society it's it is like an existential need right now yeah looking forward into that like multi-year time horizon do you think crypto is going to be able to maintain its sort of moral and ethical stance that it it has today i am i am consistently surprised that open source is still the standard that interoperability is still the standard I think if you go back to like the early days of like the API revolution at the beginning of web 2 there was this idea that you know, websites would suddenly become open and interoperable because everyone would have an API and you could you could move data from one application to another. And like a lot of that language, like it feels like it's 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 back in crypto. It's very real in today's crypto. But as this world expands and as it comes more mainstream, do you think those that sort of ethical framework and moral framework can survive contact with a publicly traded company that has a incentive to maximally extract profit? I think so. And I think the transition will be, you know, uh, it'll be slow at first, like slowly, then suddenly that sort of thing. So, you know, we haven't really hit the J curve in, in terms of, you know, disruption for you know very large companies, but I think that's not going to happen all at once, right? It'll be different pockets that, that happen. You know, Bitcoin is not going to replace the US dollar, right? But it, it might very well become a, a reserve for certain countries and, and kind of geopolitical issues where you know, people either disenfranchised or you know, their, their monetary system don't work. Or maybe it'll be stable coins, you know, ones that you know you have uh, that are algorithmic or, or that you know are maybe outside of the U.S. jurisdiction, so you know that you're going to have redeemability of them, versus you know be subject to like the search and seizure of, of you know, some U.S. authority if you're in Argentina and you're, and you're trying to use a stable coin. I think there are a lot of things, a lot of areas where it's not a foregone conclusion that you know, crypto is is going to be successful, but people are able to kind of build for for you know target personas in, in the right target markets and we're able to make you know iterative progress towards those goals i think it becomes too big to fail in certain regions or certain use cases and that's you know you just need to keep the fire going and the kindling going you don't necessarily need it to turn you know into a into a complete inferno but when we do get to that point you know it's going to be because the product is so good that nobody cares right so you know the blockbuster employees were were really broken up when Netflix ate their lunch, but the blockbuster employees just went on, you know, either worked at Netflix or you know went went to another job, right? Barnes and Noble versus Amazon. Uh, there's 
this is kind of the the the, cir- the circle of life in, in terms of capitalism and, and you know, invention and innovation in tech. And I think that tech and crypto is neutral, but ultimately, I'd argue that there's a lot more area for human contributions and 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 you know, development within crypto than something like AI, for instance. I think a- AI will be much more disruptive to like the workforce, the labor force, and and to like you know companies. And crypto will be. I think crypto is more of like a, a slow, gradual integration and, and something that's ultimately additive and, and one on one is three versus like truly, you know, create, create creative destruction that we're going to see potentially in AI and, and some of the, the upgrades that that brings. Yeah, I, that, that's really interesting, because like I think if you look back at the mobile transformation, like mobile changed the ways that we interact with software. It changed your expectation for software. It changed the way people date. It changed all sorts of things in in our lives. But like one of those biggest ones is like pre-mobile, you kind of had to be responsible for how you used the internet. Like you had to be careful you didn't go to weird websites that like installed all this weird crap on your computer. And like there's still a little bit of that on desktops. But like the the assumption there in in most mobile software now is either Apple or Google is responsible for your safety they're they're mediating your experience with the internet by having built mobile in a fundamentally different way but then you compare that to something like an electric car and you know for all tesla's you know shine an electric f-150 is basically the same as an f-150 yeah you charge it as opposed to putting gas in it but like fundamentally the experience of using a pickup truck is not radically different since it's electric where do you think crypto falls on that spectrum? It, it sounds like maybe you, you view it as a little bit more of like a back-end innovative technology that doesn't necessarily change that that paradigm of how software is built, but just changes underlying how it works. Is that accurate? I think it's a little bit more than like the swapping out the engine. I think it's probably closer to like mobile because it's going to unlock new use cases as well. But you know, just because mobile applications versus desktop applications didn't change, like it just expanded the universe of tech and expanded the the, the number of things that you could do. I, I think you know, crypto is is similar. Like, yes, you're swapping out the back end and and some of the accounting system and 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 settlement system, but there's also so many other things you can do with smart contracts that are going to unlock you know a whole universe of of things that either weren't possible before that we we didn't really imagine would be possible before. I still think just like creating scarce digital assets, whether they're fungible or non-fungible, is something that hasn't really seeped in in terms of its importance to society at large. Uh, and, and I think that's something that you know, in you know, decades in the future will be extremely obvious in hindsight. But right now, it, it's still like, okay, you can create scarcity of JPEGs, but what does that really mean? But and, and and for me, the answer is like, well, you could modularize your your identity and your reputation system and the data and IP that you have, and permission it out like you know to whoever you want, whenever you want, and and you ultimately control it versus like being, you know, susceptible of of being unpersoned by like an unfriendly like tech giant or you know state actor, right? So like that's very powerful, and like yes, there's there's going to be a lot of value that will be unlocked there at scale, even if it's not all at once. And then, you know, obviously, you know, I think with with you know, fungible currencies, a little bit more straightforward because you know, people have bought into the some people have bought into the Bitcoin meme. And I hate saying like we're still so early, and people are like, oh, we're in 1994, we're 19. Like I, I think, I, I think a lot of those comparisons are, are bullshit. And one of the reasons I say that is like I, I feel like we've got a lot of overlapping hype cycles right now. Like to to use like the Gartner curve that everybody always talks about, or the um, uh, you know install, tech installation curve. You've got kind of Bitcoin. On one cycle, you've got Ethereum and Layer 1s and smart contract platforms on another cycle, and then you've got a lot of applications 
that are all on like related but slightly different parts of the curve. And I'd argue like something like DeFi, right? DeFi summer was like way back in 2020. NFTs were only hot like beginning of last year. Really, like is, is when they started to, to, to hit scale. So you've got like an 18 month lag there. You've got the same thing with like these layer ones versus Ethereum and, and, and layer twos. So I, I feel like we're going to continue to see like areas of, of interest and, and, and heat mapping across cycles from now on. And things will start to be slightly less correlated with each progressing cycle. So looking forward, what are some technologies or projects that you've been following that you feel are, are really going to come into their own? Uh, in 2023? And, and what are some technologies that are, people are sort of just starting to talk about or sort of are just on the testnet phase that um, you think we'll be hearing more about in 2023? So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really excited about uh, DeFi, DPIN, DSOC, uh, we call them. So, so you know, DeFi, everybody knows. My quick and dirty for DeFi is, you know, if, if we can avoid the worst case scenarios on the regulatory front, DeFi's market cap is like $15 billion or something, not even, it's like 12 or $13 billion collectively, right? As an industry, JP Morgan is 400 billion, right? So if you're thinking about financial services as, as like, you know, 20 to 25% of the global economy and, and the things that DeFi can unlock and, and you know, the, the rents that it can eviscerate at scale, um, I, I still think it's such a transformative component of, of, of the industry and, and one of the primary Things that we can build around it to, to build a you know, better you know, global financial system. Decentralized uh, physical infrastructure networks are, I think, the glue, not the glue. I'd say it's more like the steel foundation that we need. And you, know, you guys know this you know, firsthand with, uh, with uh, was it Hertzner? How do you pronounce it? Hertzner, yeah. You know, the, the rug pull from like one of the biggest data centers uh, in, in Europe, basically saying crypto is not welcome here. Well, you know what? If AWS says that. We sure as shit better have like a decentralized hardware network that's going to be able to like run some of these applications, you know, and, and we got to start scaling that up. Same thing. Five, six trillion dollars in, in cloud computing is like the market size. It's about three billion dollars collectively for the market capitalization of, of decentralized like physical infrastructure networks or deep end. So do you think that it's going to be more or less than, you know, 10 basis points of the global cloud you know, computing infrastructure? I think the answer is is almost certainly going to be more when you think about censorship issues and kind of geopolitical concerns. And then I think you know decentralized social, right? So just the the current web, right? The browsing experience, the uh, the mobile operating systems, and then like the web two, like you know social uh, giants, I, I think are all absolutely things that could be you know, built around and upgraded, but with a, a user centric approach versus you know a platform and and you know, single single application centric approach. So I really like what, you know, Forecaster and Lens and, and you know, some of these crypto native uh, decentralized social networks are, are, are starting to build. And they're, those truly are like just getting into the batter's box, right? So Bitcoin, maybe it's in the third inning. You know, it's not in the first. Like Bitcoin's maybe in the third inning. Ethereum, maybe in the second inning. You know, maybe, you know, you guys in the other layer ones are, you know, top of the second or bottom of the first. But things like decentralized social and decentralized hardware networks, like they're 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 literally like first pitch sort of stage. So that's what keeps me excited, and I continue to be as long term bullish as I've ever been. We just need to not get shut down, and we gotta you know we gotta self police a little bit better so that people can't you know torch our reputation after latching on for a couple of years of exploitation. Love it. I'm feeling good about this year. I have to say, I think a lot of the fundamental investments that folks across multiple chains and industries have made through the start of a bear market in 2022, I think we're we're really going to see this is probably the best shot on goal we've had as an industry for 2023. 
and we'll see if we make it this year. Maybe it's next year, but hope so. Be good to see. Well, Ryan, thanks for joining us today. This was a great conversation. Likewise, um, and uh, best of luck uh, to you guys, the, the whole community, and uh, let's uh, let's get back to work. Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Ector, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Podglomerate. <laughs>